I'm Catherine Arndt, the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. Welcome to today's episode, brought to you by the VLGA, your councillor support network and the national broadcaster on all things local government. Welcome everyone to VLGA Connect and it's time for another in our local leaders series. Today we're going to get to know the CEO of Moyne Shire Council in southwest Victoria. Brett Davis joins me. Hi Brett. G'day Chris, good to see you. And you, thank you for coming on the program. How's life for you in Moynshire at the moment? A bit hectic on the day that we're filming. There's uh, certainly been some wild winds and damage going on, but uh, got a great staff and team around me, so we're going we're going well to address those concerns. I hear a lot of talk out of Moyne about wind. Uh, a, a hairy, windy day is 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 that good or bad for wind power production? Yes, well, the great irony there is uh, it's too windy for wind farms on a day like today. Right. Um, I've I've heard many of your podcasts so far, or your your interviews, which has been terrific, uh, and, and some people who are bracing for the renewable challenge. Uh, yeah. That's one of the challenges that it can be too windy. I did not know that, so thank you for that. Um, all right, so one of the things we like to do on this is get to know you a little bit, Brett. You're, you're reasonably new as a CEO, if you don't mind me saying, uh, appointed last yes. year for a four-year term. You're not new to local government, though. How far back does your association with the sector go? Yeah, it's a, a there and back again tale, Chris. Uh, yeah. I started at Brimbank just post-amalgamations in 94, I think it was as a junior planner or as a planner at the time and mm. uh, spent several years traipsing as, as people do through various inner and outer councils, uh, probably got out of local government into state for a period uh, and and then eventually found my way back. And um, yeah. even when I was consulting, I was generally consulting to local government to try and help because it's been a passion and an interest of mine always in terms of the public good and, and working on, on outcomes for, for councils. So that was the predominance of my work. So it's great to be back and in the big chair, as they yeah. call it. And, and for a while there, you mentioned, uh, State, you were with the Victorian Planning Authority, which, I mean, that itself hasn't been around for a long, long time, has it? Uh, no, in various iterations, probably about 15 plus years, it was the Growth Areas Authority once upon a time. But my role was Exec Director at... Uh, the VPA for regional Victoria, and that got me around, um, I think what I was dealing with at the time, about 28 regional and rural cities and towns um, with their with their ambitious program. So it was terrific to see and get to know a great, lot of great people in the industry for local government uh, and and probably ignited a bit of an interest and passion to come back at a, at a senior level. So uh, planning is obviously in, in the blood, Brett. How do you go stepping above that into a CEO role? Do you find your planning background uh, helps you with the CEO role or a hindrance or neither? Oh, it certainly helps. Uh, like with everyone that I've been listening to with your interviews, um, you, your area of expertise you tend to fall back on so you know you've got a little bit of that covered. Um, it's very hard to stay out of the day-to-day. Uh, planning is something that I, as many CEOs, get lots of calls on. And my my challenge is not to answer it straight away because I have very capable staff that it's that's their role now. I've got yeah. you know a broader organization to work with, but it is it's good to have up up your sleeve, no yeah. doubt. Um, yeah, there's not many of us that have come from planning backgrounds, but uh uh, I see a few more popping up, so that's always good. And my fellow contemporary at, at Warrnambool, Andrew Mason, um, 
Andrew and I went to uni together, did the planning course together. So it's quite wow. ironic many years ago, later that we now sit around the table at our regional uh, groupings and it's it's quite funny sometimes to think that about is, that. That's extraordinary. It, it is a small sector. And as you say, it's not the most common path to CEO. You probably more often see a finance background or engineering background, et cetera, a little bit more of the OD background these days. But your predecessor there at Moyne, who I know well, has also had a, a significant planning career in his local government background, Bill Miller, didn't he? So how how was it uh, being the planning uh, director, to, uh, reporting to a CEO with planning experience? Oh, look, it was terrific. And, and one of the things that drew me back uh, to mine at the time was um, I've, I've worked with Bill along the journey. Uh, Bill was very much one of the the economic development sort of, that um, was a great way of thinking that he had around planning as an enabler. And so it was a seamless transition to work with Bill and and also learned a great deal. Would have liked to have learned more. Yeah. Uh, I, I had the so I came in January 2020 to local government back at a senior level as a director. And then, of course, about four weeks later, we had a beautiful pandemic that, that yes. kicked off. So I, I hadn't known until recently out mowing without that. Hmm. Um, so it was a really strong period of just getting around staff and, and making sure services and continuity of delivery for our community continued. Bill was terrific during that Um I was one of four on the executive, but by the 12 months after, once Bill had said he was sailing off into the sunset, the corporate services director and the engineering director also retired. So I had the um, the old cricket parlance of Lily, Chapel and Marsh all retiring at the same <laughs> time and being fortunate to get the, the gig had it, had it ups and downs, but it's allowed me to actually bring in an executive that I've had a hand in employing, which has been terrific. Uh, and they left us in good stead, though, to, to carry on post-COVID. Was that the direction you were planning to go in when you returned in that senior role in early 2020? Was being a CEO part of the plan so quickly? Uh, it it was part of the plan. The, the, the date was never known. I knew that mm-hmm. Bill... You know, um, he was probably going to go one or two terms and he decided, as a lot of people did after the the COVID years, which were like dog years in local mm. government, yeah. <laughs> like seven years in one, um, he decided that, there were, that it was time to move on. And I was fortunate enough to um, get in front of the councillors and, and, um, and get the gig. So, uh, yes, it's been an accelerated path. In southwest Victoria, of the sort of seven councils in our grouping, I think I I came on in an acting from March, got it in June. There have been every one of those councils has changed CEOs, so I'm almost a veteran in this region. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because and that had been on the back of a long-standing. There were probably CEOs who hadn't moved for five plus years across the board. Yeah, I think it's a factor of this term of council too. The uh, the turnover of CEOs. You're not the only region uh, that would have. A statistic like that, hopefully stability now for for some time to come. But I'm also wondering, given all of the talk at the moment about potential changes to planning powers of councils, particularly coming out of Operation Sand, and what's your take on that as a CEO with strong planning experience about the direction it seems to be going? It's intriguing, Chris, and have certainly been following the governance update every Friday to to sort of get the latest thinking on that and working with Tony. Uh, as well as, as well as um, you know, 
other colleagues in the MAV, uh, Julie Reed, who we use. Look, it's frustrating that it seems that that planning and councils and planning seem to have been painted as the villain here. Mm. Uh, there is a lot of subject matter expertise that seems to have been put to one side because we have an extremely serious um, investigation and and um, activity that's been uncovered through the, the Sandin report. It's not to say that there isn't change need. We've been advocating that the change in planning should occur for a long time around certain elements of it. I mean, the Act itself is 1987. It's been tweaked. It doesn't necessarily cut the mustard for modern-day planning, and that's really around timeframes. So if the government's thinking that by removing councils out of the equation, they're going to get quicker results on the ground, I challenge that given that local government often does get the go through all the hoops in a panels process and then it goes into the great machine at 8 Nicholson Street and, and sits in abeyance. Mm. Um, so how is that going to improve? Um, so we're working closely with VLGA and MAV and LG Pro around trying to have some voice at the table. We feel that we've put, a, put to one side in some respects. So yeah. looking forward to seeing what, what comes of that. Change is due. Uh, there is no no uh, ifs or buts in that regard. Uh, some of the narrative just in the last uh, week or two has been about uh, all of the developments that have been approved but not acted on. And if they were, we wouldn't be talking about the sorts of numbers required in terms of, of housing. Is, is that an issue uh, to any extent in Moyne? Uh, not to that extent. We're traditionally a low growth shire, but we, we generally tick along uh, every year. Um, so that's not an issue per se, but our issue is that we've done strategic planning work that's been based on five plus years in three separate amendments and all gone through the process and lodged and in there and they would open up probably for us another 1% of housing across the Shire and they are sitting. They are sitting with no response. Right. So it's kind of like, well, the strategic work has been done. It's been tested by a panel. The council and the panel have said tick, tick. And then, and you know, understanding that there's a lot on the minister's desk, but it is there are quick fixes out there, and and we think we've got some to to get going. As is the traditional model of bricks and mortar housing, that discussion needs to change into there are very good modular solutions too. How long? We'll come back to that in just a second. How long generally would you expect it takes to get one of those strategic pieces of work through? The other side of the minister's approval. It it, it change, It's 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 a little bit like VCAT decisions. You know that they've they've blown out to twelve plus months. Hmm. Um, for for a panel, if it's ticked all the boxes, it shouldn't be more than six months. But uh, we find and and there's two pieces of work there that this council has grappled with for, as I said, five plus years. Hmm. And for a small council with one and a half strategic planners and a lot of money dedicated. When you do get them over the line, you expect that you at least then can see the light of day with them. So we understand it's frustrating for our community. Um, we, we're, we're in the midst, as most councils are, of a, of a housing crisis. We can't get early early learning workers. We can't get um, nurses, teachers, all sorts, because they're interested in a job and then there's no housing available. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. And in a place like Port Ferry, a tourist town, You've also got that issue of there's houses here, but they're all Airbnb or short-term accommodation, and 
we've looked at all those models around stinging them with a little bit more rates, this, that, and the other, but it's cost recovery for those owners. There's not an interest to open up the home. We understand that, but it is frustrating. So you are not looking like going down the path that some have with annual caps on the short-term rentals as well as the registration fees? No, because we've seen where that's happened and it seems to just be absorbed uh, and, and it doesn't affect it. Ultimately, you've also got an issue of trying to enforce those caps. Hmm. Who at council is going to go around and monitor how many days someone is staying in a certain house? Hmm. Practically impossible. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So on the housing, you've you've re- you've received some attention for a couple of innovative things you've done, particularly in the key worker housing space, if I recall correctly. We had a chat quite a few months ago about mm-hmm. that. Tell us about what you've done there that's a little bit different. So identifying the market failure a couple of years ago, we were fortunate enough to then uh, trial a scheme with regards to uh, cabins in a couple of our caravan parks centrally located in, in our Mortlake and Corroit towns. Uh, where we then ran an expression of interest to local businesses in those towns for people to come in and stay if um, through the businesses. So we would strike leases with the businesses for their workers. And that had been oversubscribed ever since we've done it to the power of four. So like we've got five in Coroit, five in Mortlake, and we would have 35 plus on a wait list, showing you that there's a demand. And what happens over that 12 months, they then generally find an available house within those towns. So they move out and we get someone else in. And that's enabled businesses to employ arborists, nurses, uh, critical care workers, um, people for uh, Midfield Meats and, and Bega, two of our bigger employers as well. So we found that it's a, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good way into areas. And once you're in a known, you generally chances of getting a, a house seems to improve as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we're, we're working with the government and Minister Shin certainly on, on trying to get more of those because they were delivered within a six-month period. The turnaround was quick. Uh, it's, it had been a really um, successful pilot program for us. Well, well done. And uh, I imagine well-received, uh, not just within Moyne, but it would be of interest uh, more broadly too. Have you had inquiries from, from other municipalities as to what you've done? Certainly have. And I recently spoke at the Rural Council's Victoria um, at Echuca and, and so I've had a, been inundated since then as well. Oh. Mm. Um, and, and it's a credit to the councillors too who, who took the plunge and said, okay, let's give this a go. We'll back it in. Uh, and the government you know, co-funded with us a, a number of those. And we're, we've now got the demonstrated and lived experience to say, well, this should be an option across the board and we're happy to share that with anyone. Um, wind. Let's talk about wind. We touched on it uh, earlier very briefly uh, and we've talked about this with your Mayor, Karen Foster, on another edition of the program. But it, it, it is a vexing issue in the renewable space, isn't it, where you, you're not actually the decision maker on a lot of these things, but it's having great impact potentially on your community. Certainly is. Uh, there's 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 a couple of real key elements. Um, you know, a lot of people, as I said at the start, they're they're getting ready for the transition. So thinking around Gippsland and listening to Karen's interview the other day, which is terrific, and we're working with Karen, giving some some shared experience. Moyne's um, got six in operation, six wind farms in operation, four in construction, four more on the books. If they're all built. That's 900,000 homes we're powering. That's 12.5% of our land area. 
um, and that's 2.3 gigawatts of electricity generated. That's huge numbers. We power the state. Unabashedly, we say we're an agricultural powerhouse and now we're an electricity powerhouse. Wow. Mm. Um, having said all of that, not one person in Moinshire derives any benefit from cheaper power or power from those wind farms. They, they're like a highway and they, they go into Melbourne. We don't have the off-ramp per se. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're really working with the with VicGrid and the government around some better deals for the host, uh, not the ones that have turbines on their sites. They have a, a they they do get some um, financial benefit from it, but then the, the communities in and around that and and how we can really work with that. Mm. Um, you know, based on that twelve percent, basically, if you think of the six hundred and seventy two square kilometres. That that makes up. That's the that's the city of Wyndham. So the city of Wyndham is wind farms in our shire. Mm. Um, so geographically, we're five and a half thousand square kilometres. People will say, "Oh, well, you've got plenty of room," but they do they do have a mark on the landscape, particularly if it's an uninterrupted view. The council has a view at the moment of pausing that planning until the greater view of cumulative impacts is assessed, and the the sort of the spaghetti wire of of transmission. Is, is dealt with. So we, we do have those issues, a community of interest that feels like they've been left behind, but acknowledging the absolute challenge of the state for us to deliver on a renewable future. Hmm. And, and we're, we're up for that, but we have to be cognizant. We've got to play to the community who think that we have the ultimate say, uh, when, as you quite clearly articulated, it, it's a state government call at the end, and we've just got a seat at the table. And they're big numbers uh, that you've just um, outlined there. Uh, tourism is a big um, uh, factor for you economically. Do the wind turbines attract people who want to see them and take photos, that sort of thing? Are they a tourist attraction in and of themselves? Oh, to a very small extent, but yeah. no, not really. I think mm. uh, once upon a time, we've got two wind farms that are 20 years old that were the first two. That was probably the curiosity factor, but now... You can you can generally go and see turbines everywhere. Mm. Offshore's the next great horizon, and and we're we're in the we're in the mix for that as well. So um, we'll see whether people want to come and have a look at them <laughs> yeah. from the beach. Yeah. Well, we, we're we're very proud of our tourism product. Port Ferry is one of the top tourist town. Two years in a row, um, uh, the team works pretty hard, and the town swells from three to fourteen, fifteen thousand people over summer. And we've then put in some workforce initiatives to support our local businesses by opening up lodge placements for temporary staff that goes to the local businesses, um, the stay, work and play, the retirees uh, initiative, which I think Warnable pinched as they're saying they're the first. No, it was a mine thing. Really? Uh, Here we go. Some some scandal. I was just <laughs> going to ask you, have you copied what Warnable's done? But it's the other way around. That is correct. So we've had we've had the nomads coming in, and I've got I've got nomads working with us, staying in our caravan parks, um, and it's a terrific initiative. But uh, we'll happily share with our neighbours. That's okay. We punch you, above you, our weight. You missed the opportunity to put a catchy name on it. They called it "Unretiring the Bull," and uh, and they've just they own it now. I'm sorry to tell you, Brett. <laughs> hey, that, 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 and that's okay. They can have that. <laughs> But tourism generally is going well in and, and, and recovered fully. And, and how, how does your infrastructure keep up with that, that huge influx that you just described? Tourism really has benefited um, and continues to grow. 
even during lockdowns. I think we had a few people fleeing and enjoying our lifestyle <laughs> during the, the 5K lockdowns in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and the infrastructure is always a challenge with, with that that surge, but we plan in advance and and uh, we do our best. You know things are getting busy when you've got to start queuing for your coffee. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's small small things as a local, but we welcome the tourists and the investment that they provide because uh, Moyne really um, benefits from the tourism package, particularly Port Ferry and Caroit at this stage. So when you want a holiday, where do you go, Brett? <laughs> it's hard it's hard to see over in a holiday town during holiday periods because you keep walking around going oh those bins are full exactly like car parks yeah. and strife what are we going to do about that ev charger um it, it is it's an interesting question chris isn't it about how you turn off particularly when you live and work in the town that you that you um that you are that you're in uh mm. So, look, I've, I've got kids in another part of the state, big fans of this uh, podcast and, and show, so I better do Brilliant. a shout-out to them because they'll say, Dad, did you give us a shout-out? Excellent. Um, and so I tend to get around a little bit in that regard. I've got I've got family still in, in uh, Ballarat and Shepparton, so you use that to sort of get out of, of the shire yeah. sometimes. But it's a pretty good place to work and live. That is the... That's the recruitment pitch in terms of if you want lifestyle uh, in abundance... Uh, Moyne Shire can deliver on that for you. I didn't realise we had a Shepparton connection in common, Brett. Yes, well, I've I've had um, had a number of people say that you uh, you were on the radio here once upon a time or in, in Shep, and uh, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I've, I've got uh, three of my kids uh, live in Shepparton, so. Well, there you go. Yeah, well, it's it's hometown for me. Um, so where do you see yourself five, 10 years from now, Brett? Is this, uh, is, is this the pinnacle of your career being the CEO there at Moyne or have you got other career, um, plans? Oh, big question. Uh, look, I, I'm really enjoying it. I, I think I'm now in the, in the, the proper swimming lane. It, it's been a bumpy, uh, 12 months for, for various reasons as all CEOs encounter. Uh, and I really want to see the first contract through and, and see where that leads, um, you know, there's opportunity there, but I also take, um, you know, I, I take the time to, to check in with more experienced people in the game. I've been lucky enough to have people like Calvin Spiller uh, through the XLP program um, sort of be a mentor. Uh, that that program itself, I think, has now spurned three or four CEOs from when I was in it. Mm. So we become a close set as well as at the beginning end, but then also great people like like Craig Neiman, who uh, is always willing to to share a view or a, be a sounding board, um, and 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 some of my more contemporaries, Karen in particular, and Bernie have all always you know reached out when there's when there's things uh, that we might have done that they need or vice versa. I, I really value their input, and, and CEOs are a sharing bunch. I've come to discover, so it's 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 terrific. Um, the role of a CEO can be lonely. I think that's a recurring theme in your chats you're having with us. Yes. Uh, but there is, it's important to have a couple of trusted advisors to reach out to. And I've certainly got a couple of those, which is very handy and, and not necessarily in the industry. Well, um, Brett, it's been great to chat with you. Congratulations on what you're achieving there at Moyne. I think it's genuinely one of those small shires around the state that you could say, is punching above its weight on a number of metrics. So all power to you. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on Local Leaders. No worries, Chris. Been great to have a chat.
Brett Davis is the CEO at Moyne Shire Council with us on Local Leaders today from VLGA Connect. Mm-hmm.